Thanks, Nicole. A couple of months ago, when we could actually go back to the office, I was listening to some colleagues who were talking in the lunchroom, and they were just having a chat about the types of movies that make them cry. A little strange. But all the classics were coming up as I was listening in. Uh, Titanic came up, Pearl Harbor, Babe came up, Shrek. And I was very happy. I'm just sitting back from the conversation, and I'm thinking, I don't, don't need to get involved. I've got nothing to say. It's fine. And then, boom, spotlight lands on me. And they say, Tim, what movie makes you cry? And I think, oh, no, I've got to tell them. I need to confess. I, okay. So I said, guys, movies, no, no they, they don't actually make me cry. I don't cry in movies. Well, I do have feelings, and, and, and I know that because there's a TV show, in fact, that I can't get through a single episode of without crying. And I'll tell you what it is. It's Undercover Boss. <laughs> Has anyone seen Undercover Boss? Yeah? No, you're all too good for it? <laughs> you probably are, to be fair. It's this old B-grade, at best, reality TV show where, where what happens is the CEO of some organisation like Subway or something, they go undercover in their own company. They work for their own company and they make sandwiches in some sort of backwater suburban store and, and they're bossed around by a manager. But the moment that actually gets me is at the end of every episode. The same thing happens every episode, where this, this suburban store manager is flown to LA or wherever the company headquarters are, and they don't know why, but they're escorted all the way up to the CEO's office, and they're brought through, and you, there's this moment where the manager looks up into the CEO's face, boss who is no longer undercover and they begin to recognize who this person really is and it's this moment where true authority becomes known and identity becomes clear and always one of two things will happen either you, you see the manager look into the face of the of the boss and then just melt and dissolve into shame and guilt as they think oh, how did I fail to recognise who this person really is? Uh-oh. Or you see the manager meet the CEO and this sort of giggling delight and joy just comes out of them and, and they think to themselves, yes, I always thought there was something more to you and, and now I see it, I get it, I recognise who you really are. I don't know exactly why Undercover Boss affects me the way it does, and this is certainly not the time or the place to unpack that, maybe another time, but Undercover Boss, it shows us that recognising who somebody really is, it, it changes everything. It changes everything. And this passage from John 2 that was read out, that it has a sort of undercover boss type moment in it where identity becomes clear and authority becomes known. And John, he's the author that's recorded this, this passage for us, 
He's crafted every single word here so that we would recognise who Jesus really is, that we wouldn't miss it. And so as we look through these verses this evening, the question for us is, will we really recognise who Jesus is? Will we recognise him for who he really is? Or will we be like the suburban store manager and one day say, oh no, Jesus, I didn't, I never really, I never recognised who you really are. Or tonight, will we be like those who go, yes, Jesus, I always thought there was more to you and now, now I see it, now I know. Well, the, the way we're going to answer that question is in this text, is in John 2. That will be our guide for knowing if we do recognise who Jesus really is. And so tonight we're going on three walks. Maybe during lockdown you went on a bunch of walks, or tonight we're going on three. We're going for a walk into the, into the temple courts on the day that this passage records. We're going to walk into an old tent, and then we're going to walk around the northern Illawarra. So I'll walk through the temple courts. I want you to imagine for a moment that you're an ordinary first century Jew, okay? And you live somewhere on the edge of the Mediterranean, and a few times a year you would travel with your family to Jerusalem for all the biggest days in the annual calendar. And on this occasion you're coming to Jerusalem for the Passover festival, Let me tell you two things that you would have known, two things that would have been on your mind when you're coming to Jerusalem for the Passover festival. Firstly, you would have known that this is a loaded time of year. It's a time of year that's loaded with meaning because the Passover festival that you're coming to, it's it's the foundational, essential, annual, built-in reminder of your salvation story, of who you are. And you would remember that last night in Egypt when God's people, if you remember in Exodus, they put the blood of the lamb on their doorposts so that God's judgment would pass over them. So when you hear Passover festival, don't think random public holiday. Think time of year loaded with meaning. The second thing you would have known on your way to Jerusalem was not only is it a time loaded with meaning, but you're headed to a place that is loaded with meaning. And it's loaded, firstly, in a literal sense. There are two million Jews who are all ascending to Jerusalem for this festival. So don't don't think sleepy South Coast town in winter. Think Pitt Street Mall on Christmas Eve in Sydney, or think Thoreau-grassed area on the 26th of January. It is packed. So it's, you would have also known, not only in just a literal crowded sense, but there is deep meaning because of the place you're headed. Well, it's, it's actually the same area, the same bit of territory that the Old Testament refers to as the promised land. This is the same area that was promised to Abraham all the way back in Genesis. And you're heading into that land. And if we remember that the land, it's not just a neutral patch of soil or a coincidental backdrop. 
to the drama that unfolds through the Bible. No, no, the land, that's God's special place. It's where all of his promises were focused and were supposed to come true. And so that's why exile was so traumatic for the people of God, was because, well, to be separated from God's place, the promised land, was to be cut off from the place where God's kingdom was to be expressed. So you're in the land, right? But more than just in the land, you're headed to Jerusalem, the capital. And more than just the capital, Jerusalem, you're headed to the temple. You're headed to the place where God meets with his people. And if you think of, think of the temple as this sort of cosmic crossroads, right, where, where you've, got the, you've got heaven and earth, You've got the supernatural and the natural, the eternal and the temporal. They all collide in this place, in the, in, in the temple. And so you're not running errands to the post office here. You are approaching the most holy place on earth. There's no doubt you would have known that this is a loaded time of year and a loaded place that you're headed to. So now you've arrived at the temple, okay, you're here, legs sore from the journey, maybe blisters from your sandals, and for you to take part in the Passover, a couple of things that would have been on your agenda for you to do, and the first of which, you need to source an animal, you need to get an animal to take to the temple to pay for the sins of you and your family, right? So obviously you're not going to walk one all the way from home, and you're not going to have carried one, so you're going to use your cash. You need to buy one. But before you can buy one, you need to convert your local currency that you have into the special currency that the temple uses. So you need to speak to the money changers. And conveniently for you, perhaps, there is, guess who's in the, the courtyard of the temple? The money changers and the animal sellers. Okay? So you, you see the scrum around the table, and you jump in, and you're going to try and get to the front to get what you need. And on your way to the front, there's yelling and there's selling and there's doves flapping and sheep bleating and profits and purchases. It's all going on. This is the Royal Easter show just on steroids. Like It is going off. And, and you are so drawn up into all the commotion of that crowd that you don't notice him. You don't see it. That there's actually a man who sits back from the crowd and he's watching on, and he's got these long cords of grass that he's weaving patiently into a whip. And if you look at verse 15, it tells you what this man, Jesus, what he does, and then what, he's, what he says. Verse 15, he drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins and overturned the tables. So if it was a commotion before, imagine just the frenzy now, total frenzy, and all eyes are now fixed on this man, and you listen in, and you hear him say this, get these out of here, stop turning my father's house into a market, and you're frozen, you're shocked, and you continue to listen in as a couple of the Jews engage this man, Jesus, 
and they, they ask him a question. One question, they say, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do this? Prove your authority to us. You know what, I actually think that's a pretty fair question from the Jews. I think it's a fair question because I think it would be like if you or I were in London and you do a tour of like Buckingham Palace or somewhere and you're brought through into the Royal Lounge or some room and there's someone in your tour guide when you turn around and they're moving furniture around and they start to kick people out. Maybe we would ask the same question. What authority have you got to do this? Because only the person whose house it is has the authority to move the furniture, right? Kick, kick people out. So it's a fair enough question, I think, the Jews ask. And then Jesus has this mic drop moment where he responds, and he responds with one claim. He says this, Destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. Destroy this temple, and I'll raise it again in three days. Have you ever had a moment in conversation where you've just been on the wrong level? Totally on the wrong level. You're just not picking up what the other person is putting down. I think this is a classic example from the Jews here, because they've heard Jesus' claim, and they're doing the mental math, and they're thinking... Okay, so 46 years to build this temple, not possible for one man to rebuild in 72 hours. The claim just does not compute for them at all. But John, the author, he is desperate for us to to not misunderstand. He wants us to recognise who Jesus really is. And so in verse 21, he actually interjects into this story with a little note of instruction. Have a look. He says, the temple Jesus is talking about is his body. Jesus is talking about his body. So in this moment, Jesus is, is creating this, claiming this new connection between the physical temple in Jerusalem and his own physical body. And the idea is this, in the same way that you come to the temple to have your sin dealt with and to meet with God, well now, me, through my body, this is the place where sin is dealt with and you meet with God. That's, that's, his, that's his claim that he's making here. But to understand the fullness of Jesus' words... Uh, we need to look at the context of this claim, and specifically the Old Testament context, because, yes, we're in the New Testament now, but Jesus is painting here with these very sort of Old Testament colours as he speaks, and so that's why we need to go on our, a second walk, our walk into an old tent. Before we set foot in the tent, and we will, It's important for us to remember that God has always intended to dwell with his people, to enjoy close and physical and personal relationship with his people. And if you think back to Genesis, that's the pattern that's set up, that's then disrupted and destroyed when Adam and Eve sin and are kicked out of the garden. 
And this question just runs through the whole Old Testament from that point. How is a holy God ever going to live amongst sinful people? How is God and mankind ever going to be brought back to that close and personal and physical sort of relating that we see in the garden? Well, that brings us to the tent or the tabernacle, as it was called. And after God rescued Israel from Egypt and he makes them his special people and he gives them his law, God then commissions the construction of this special tent. And if we were to look back at Leviticus and we could read chapter after chapter after chapter of detail where God says what to make it out of and what the dimensions are and who can go in and when they can go in and how to use this tent. There is so much detail there and and this was the tent that was the designated place God would meet with his people and we needed it, they needed it because God couldn't just walk among his people like he did in Genesis. Because if he did, they would have been destroyed. They would have died straight away because of his holiness. And so the tabernacle, with the sacrificial system functioning within it, well, that was the way that, the only way that God's people could meet with God and not die. So what we're going to do is we're going to walk. I'm going to take us into the tent, and I'm just going to point out a few of the things that you would have seen as you move through. So from the east, as you step into the tabernacle, the first thing you would have seen was the altar of burnt offering. And this was the place where you would bring your animal, and you would place your hand on the animal, and you would confess your sin before the priest, and then that animal would be killed would die, would be put on the altar, would be burnt up, destroyed. And the idea is this, although it is your sin, it will die so that you live. That's what's going on at the altar of the burnt offering. I should probably note that if you weren't a priest, then you wouldn't have actually gone any further. You wouldn't have seen any more. You needed a priest to go in on your behalf. But if you were a priest, the next thing that you would have seen was the, the basin where you would wash your hands and your feet. And if you didn't, and you went through to the next section, the holy place, you would have died. You need to wash your hands and wash your feet because you had to be cleansed before coming into God's presence. And then coming into the holy place, again from the east, you would have seen the lampstand menorah which think of like a candlestick that's shaped like a tree. And it provides light onto the inside of this tent. And moving past the lampstand menorah, you would have seen the final curtain, the veil in front of you. And embroidered into that curtain is a cherubim, an angel. And and think back to Genesis. What What does God place at the entrance back to Eden after Adam and Eve have been kicked out. It's a cherubim. It's an angel. And it's such beautiful imagery that through this curtain, you're going back into Eden-like closeness to God. And so moving through the curtain, you would be in the most holy place. And in the most holy place, only one person could go 
the high priest, once a year on the Day of Atonement. And if you were that high priest, you would have gone in and you would have seen the Ark of the Covenant. And in the Ark of the Covenant, inside that box, there are the Ten Commandments, the artifact that represents all of God's promises to his people. But there's actually a double meaning to the Ark of the Covenant because it's been designed and it's built in such a way, this box, that it looks like the footstool to a throne. It looks like a footstool to the throne because this is the place where the king's feet touch the earth. That's what's going on. This is the place where the king's feet touch the earth. So if we zoom out from all of that detail we've just seen, we see that okay, the tabernacle, it's, a, it's the place where sin is dealt with and, we, and they can meet with God. That's the tabernacle. And yet, at the same time, it was only ever this sort of temporary structure. It's a, it's a tent. And, and the moments of meeting, they're very rare, very fleeting. They don't happen very often. This is clearly not the sort of relationship where God is just moving among his people like he did in Eden. And as the Old Testament plays out, we see this tent, this tabernacle, it moves with Israel around the wilderness until in Solomon's day, we get Tabernacle 2.0 is built, the temple. And it's bigger and it's more glorious, but all the same structure, the same imagery is all there. But by the time we get to the passage we read today, Jesus is speaking, well, that glorious temple built by Solomon had been rejected by God and destroyed by Babylonians six centuries earlier. And so the temple in Jerusalem at this point, well, it's, it's a bit of a sad replica of the original in a lot of ways. It's, it's not bad, but it doesn't have the same glory and it's become this commercial opportunity for money changers and for animal sellers. But even still, it was still the place that was the, the centre point of the sacrificial system. You could still come and have sin dealt with and you could still meet with God. So that's it. That's the Old Testament context to Jesus' claim that we heard earlier. And with that freshen our mind. What is Jesus actually saying when he makes his claim that his body is the new temple? What is he actually saying when he says he will rebuild it in three days? Well, Jesus is saying that altar of burnt offering, me, I, I am the Lamb of God who dies for you. And, and for the sin of the whole world. The basin to cleanse, I'm the one that can wash you clean in my blood. The priest who enters on your behalf, it's, I am the ultimate forever high priest. I can go in, I do go in where you cannot. That tree lampstand that brings light, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. And I'm not like Adam, who ate from the tree and brought death and darkness to the world. No, I, I'm the new Adam. 
I'm going to die on a tree to bring the light of salvation to everyone. The curtain with the cherubim. Jesus says, I'm the one that can restore and return you to garden-like closeness with God. The Ark of the Covenant with the Ten Commandments, all those promises, Jesus says, I am the yes and the amen to all of God's promises. My body is the place where the king's feet touch the earth. My body is the place where the king's feet touch the earth. I atone for you. I secure access for you. I am God's place for you. That's what he's saying. That's his claim. Let me show you just one last thing. So we're in, we're in John 2 tonight. If we go back to John 1, verse 14, it says this, The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. The Word became flesh, made his dwelling among us. The Word there is Jesus. So Jesus made his dwelling among us. And the word dwelling there is translated from a word that means, guess what? To encamp, to set a tent, to tabernacle. Jesus tabernacles with us. That's his claim. But if you look at verse 22, we see that, well, in the moment, the disciples don't really get the claim. They don't get it. And in fact, everyone that heard it that day didn't get it. They didn't understand. But verse 22, it tells us that the disciples, they believe it to be true after Jesus has died and three days later has risen to life. Now they recognize who he really is. Now they get it. Jesus is God's place for us. I just think that has got to be the ultimate undercover boss moment for all of history, isn't it? Where, where identity becomes known, where authority is made clear. So we see that the tabernacle and then the temple, it was always peering over the horizon at something greater, at something better, at a, at a place where you could have your sin dealt with forever and you could meet with God forever. And, and that place, that greater place, has finally been revealed here. And it's Jesus. It's Jesus. Okay, a third walk. A walk around the northern Illawarra. So when you go on a walk around Bulai or Wanuna or wherever you happen to walk, we don't see many temples anymore in our area. We don't see many temples. But what we do see is people who are still searching, who are searching and they're longing for relationship, for some sort of connection with God and maybe even relate with him in some way. You'll see flyers in cafes and all, all sorts of things in the community that offer some sort of spiritual connection of some kind. And maybe that's you. You're searching. You're longing for that access to God. 
or maybe for atonement. You're looking for a way that you can move past guilt and shame. And there is such good news here in this passage for you. And the good news is this. Your search can stop. The search can stop today. Recognize who Jesus really is. He is the place that God has agreed to meet you. He's the place God's agreed to meet you. My dad, he turned 60 last weekend, and so mum and dad, they booked a house up on the central coast for me and my siblings and them to hang out, to celebrate, be together as a family. Now, Laura and Finn and I, we could have driven to the Sunshine Coast, right? Could have. We could have gone to the South Coast, but we would never have found dad. <laughs> we would have been searching all weekend. No, no, we went to the Central Coast because that's the place that Dad had agreed to meet us. Come to Jesus. He is the place that God has agreed to meet us. And maybe that sounds nice to you. That sounds great, but I don't think Jesus would want someone like me. I feel too far off. I feel too different. I just don't know if Jesus would want to, to welcome someone like me. Well, there's more good news for you from this passage. And the good news is that there was, in the temple, there was always a place that was designated for people who were far off, literally for foreigners to come and meet with God and be joined to God's people and that place, it still exists. It still exists, but now it exists in Jesus. And so you come to him in your heart, and you don't find him holding a whip. Not at all. You find open arms. You experience his, his embrace, Jesus, the, the friend of sinners. He can deal gently with you. And if you'd like to talk about that, please come and chat with me after. Chat to Michael, chat to the person you came with. Just chat to someone and let them know you want to talk more about that. And this passage, it, it speaks also to those of us who do know Jesus and love him and call ourselves Christians. And it shows us that there are, there are two ways of approaching God. There's two different ways. And one way, which is shown in the temple courts is totally fixated on what I have to do. It's about me bringing my animal to get my access to God. So I might be doing all the right things, but it's just so transactional. It's so transactional. And I'm turning my relationship with God into a marketplace. Do you ever fall into the, the trap of feeling like you're in a pattern of relating with God like that. I know I do. I feel that. And it is. It's just foolishness to approach God that way because, well, because we have a better way. <laughs> we have a much better way. And, and the better way is to look to him, to look at Jesus, to come to him in our hearts, to, to look at his life and his death and his resurrection to, to looking at what he has done to enable that close and personal and physical relationship 
to see what he has done to secure our access and our atonement. So a, a special building in Jerusalem or, or seeking out a holy land somewhere to go, we need neither. We don't need it because we have Christ. We have Christ. And so we come to him in our hearts because he is God's place for us. We come to Jesus. He is God's place for us. Amen.